welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 300, Noble Lives. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of an eggnog latte per month. And thank you very much to Cody, Bree, and Keith for signing up already. When we left off, we were talking about thanes. Specifically, we were talking about king's thanes and how they could wield degrees of power that could rival even the formidable eldermen. At this point in this short series, the hope is that you have a sense of what incentives the economic structure created, as well as the way that power flowed in this area, and what these titles meant when they were put in action. I've tried to make this personal and give you a ground-level view of it, but a lot of this discussion has been, by necessity, from an almost orbital perspective. After all, we're talking about incentives, structures, and cultures, and that demands a very broad view. So today, let's restrict that scope. We know what incentive structures and cultural constraints are in play, but that's not the way that these nobles would have understood their lives as they were living them day to day. It's probably not how you see your life either. For example, when you're at the grocery store deciding what to make for dinner, you're not thinking about how supply chains, economic incentives, and cultural views on certain ingredients are guiding your decisions. All you're thinking is, huh, ground beef is on sale. I guess I'm going to make tacos tonight. And it's no different for the people in the past. Consequently, while this conversation about the structure of life is illuminating, and it helps us understand why the nobles are doing the things that they're doing, the actual lives being lived would have been far more immediate and granular just like your life. And in this series, we haven't been talking about the tacos. We've just been talking about the supply chain and the culture and the other elements that ultimately would lead to tacos. So today, we're talking about tacos. Specifically, we're talking about how those retinues that surrounded the nobility and were often made up of other nobles were arranged. We're going to be talking about a lord's household. But it goes without saying that the relative wealth and power of a noble could dramatically impact the size and scale of his household. So don't assume that our talk today describes what every lord's household looked like. It doesn't. A king would have a much larger staff than a minor local thane, for example. All these households were different. But, regardless of whether you're talking about royalty or just a local lord, the fact remains that you need a lot of people working at all levels of the estate in order to keep things running. It turns out that a life of leisure requires a tremendous amount of labor. Other people's labor. Which brings us to the first part of noble living. Ensuring that there's enough manpower to keep the lord in the manner that he's accustomed. And the solution to that problem was to ensure that every single person was attached to a lord. Everyone. Now, most people were tenants on an overlord's land, and that would have tied them to the structure of lordship. But it didn't stop there. Even if you owned your own plot of land, you were still subject to someone else's overlordship. You answered to somebody. Somebody was coming along and collecting your taxes. And these tenancy and land-based systems of overlordship managed to cover most people. However, there's always loopholes. In fact, there were all kinds of ways that you could have someone slip through the cracks, and the result would be an unattached individual, someone who wasn't beholden to a specific lord. 
And that's not good for a system that was designed to have cascading levels of delegation, in which everyone was linked up and ultimately would be answerable to the king. Having just some rando out there answerable to no one? Well, that's a threat. And King Athelstan recognized the danger of lordless people in his legal codes. He argued that unattached individuals were people, quote, for whom no justice can be obtained, end quote. And given the state of Anglo-Saxon law, he was right. If you weren't attached to the system of lords, you weren't attached to the justice system either. I mean, who would you answer to if you did something? Whose court would you be taken to? Who would provide surety over you in the case of a trial? Now it was a significant problem. So let's imagine that you're the son of an itinerant craftsman in Dorset. Your father had an arrangement with the elderman where he would pay his taxes to the reeve and he would answer to him. That worked out pretty well. But several years ago, your father died. And so did the elderman. Since then, you've been selling your trade and moving around, as your dad did. And everyone knows you, so no one's been asking too many questions. But a new reeve was assigned to the shire. And upon discovering that you seemingly answered to no one, he took you into custody, citing King Athelstan's legal code. Sometime later, you were brought to a large public gathering of the local nobility. And there you were presented to them. The Reeve told you that under King Athelstan's laws, you would need to find someone who was willing to accept you as their subject, or you would be declared an outlaw, meaning that you would be outside the justice system and anyone could kill you with impunity. Newly motivated to find a lord, you would then have to try and convince someone to take you on. And take a second to think about that. With the threat of a violent death hanging over you, you would now have to find someone who would agree to accept you as a subject. Meaning that you would essentially be trying to convince a noble that you'll make it worth their time to accept you as their servant. But with Athelstan's legally mandated jobs program, that pretty much meant that everyone was working for a lord in one way or another. And that meant that lords had a lot of manpower from which to choose their hiridman, their retainers. It's literally spelled hired men, by the way. And these retainers would be the people who served them directly, rather than those who worked out in the fields or took care of other more attenuated tasks. And this path of an unattached person finding a lord wasn't guaranteed to go smoothly, or even well. But let's say that you got lucky, and you were chosen by a lord in short order, without too much pleading. Well, next, you need to take part in a formal ceremony sealing your pact with your new lord. You'd be brought to a special location, possibly a chapel and a holy item would likely be brought out, probably a relic. And the purpose of that relic was to have God provide a sort of spiritual insurance policy, binding you to your word. Then you'd be asked to kneel, and you'd have to swear a holdath, basically a loyalty oath. And here's an actual holdath that managed to survive in the record. Quote, By the Lord before whom this relic is holy, I will be faithful and true to my Lord and love all that he loves and shun all that he shuns according to God's law and secular custom and never willingly or intentionally by word or by deed do anything that is displeasing to him on condition that he keep me as I shall deserve and fulfill what we agreed when I submitted to him and chose to do his will, End quote. And it's through this oath that you would become the Lord's retainer his Hiradman. Now, close listeners probably noticed that this oath was set out in fairly vague terms. And that might have been the point. 
Those vague terms gave the Lord a greater deal of flexibility and control over his closest servants. And on the flip side, the Lord was expected to provide his retainers with protection and keep the retainer as he deserves. But like fidelity, the terms of this were vague and undefined. It could include things like food, clothing, weapons, armor, horses, maybe even land. And we do see some retainers receiving all of those things. But there's nothing specifically mandating it. The Lord held the power in this relationship. And it was his call whether you got any of those things that I listed. But that being said, faithful service as a retainer was one of the few ways that a freeman like you might have any hope of becoming a landed noble. So even though the terms were terrifyingly soupy, they were one of the only ways that someone like you could get ahead in 10th century England. But if it became clear that your lord wasn't the generous sort, well, too bad. You already made your oath, and it was an oath without an end date. Once you enter service as a retainer, you're in. Period. Your commendation to this position was legally enforceable, and you couldn't just quit. If your lord was keeping you as you deserve, which was a rather vague condition, then you better just keep doing as you're told. Because if you don't, the punishment could be severe. And that's because betraying your lord, which could conceivably include refusing to carry out his orders, wasn't like any regular crime. It wasn't like something where you could just pay a fine and walk away. Instead, betraying your lord was seen as a crime on the same level as murder. If your lord felt betrayed, you very well could end up losing your life. And in the members episodes, we've been talking about how slavery was falling out of fashion during this same time period. And this system of bound, lifelong service based upon very vague terms that serve the lord's interests seems to be one of the ways that they're replacing slavery. But moving along. So now that you become a Hiridman, you are now a company man for life. Lateral moves just weren't going to be in the cards for you can't shop around for a more generous or less temperamental lord, so it's probably best that you just do what you're told. Though chances are that you were raised to see this as completely normal. English honor culture was heavily focused upon selfless fealty and duty. Since you were a young child, you would have been entertained and awed by epic poems on these themes. Poems like The Wanderer, which was a famous Old English poem that was the lament of a warrior who outlived his lord. That fate was treated as one of the worst possible outcomes for a retainer. See, Anglo-Saxon culture stressed that self-sacrifice, even to the point of death, was honorable. That's how a good Anglo-Saxon lived and died, in service to his superiors, without any thought for himself. So upon taking your oath, you very well might have felt a sort of satisfaction or pride, because you knew that you were signing up for something for the rest of your life. And for you, it wasn't a prison. It was a purpose. You know how you go out with your friends for drinks when you get a new job? Even though when you really start to think about it, what you've technically signed up for was to make your boss more money in exchange for a small cut of that amount. But you don't think about that. Instead, all you think about is, oh my god, Mr. Withers gave me a job. This will really help my career. It's probably a bit like that. Culturally, by taking an oath for a lifelong position of servitude, you probably felt you were taking another step towards a good and righteous life. It was your duty and your honor to faithfully serve a lord. But that being said, 
sometimes retainers would work for other lords. They'd even sometimes work for a couple lords simultaneously. We see that happen from time to time in the record. And apparently, that didn't trigger the fealty rules. Because even with honor cultures, sometimes you just have to make it work. And being that you're a craftsman, there actually is a pretty good chance that you would be one of those retainers who would be sent to work on other lords' lands from time to time. You know, when your lord commanded it. I guess when it comes down to it, it's not a betrayal if your lord rents you out to his friends. Now, as you might have guessed, not all retainers were created equal. Working as a retainer for a lord bestowed a portion of his status upon you, but different positions came with different duties, and they too conveyed different degrees of status. For example, while you're attached to the lord by oath, due in large part to your skill as a craftsman, you're still just a craftsman. You're a worker. Consequently, you're not on the same level as, say, the members of his household staff. In fact, given the type of work that you're carrying out, you might not even realize that the Lord doesn't have just one household staff. He has two. In fact, any Lord worth his salt would have two household staffs. There'd be two areas that were kept separate and distinct. And when they're brought up in the record, they're spoken about as such. Think about this almost like front of the house, back of the house, except with a lot more class distinctions applied. Or maybe closer to upstairs, downstairs. The two groups can be broadly separated into the servants who worked in the Lord's private chambers and the servants who worked in the Lord's hall. Now, the Lord's hall was where he received the public. So was a high-ranking noble riding through seeking hospitality? Well, the hall would be where he was greeted. Were there any disputes or matters of state that needed to be handled? It would be the hall where the Lord would hear them. If a grand feast was scheduled, it was probably held in the hall. So the servants who worked in the hall handled most matters that related to the business of that location. They were the Lord's public-facing household. They were the servants that handled matters like going to market or handling upkeep, welcoming guests, preparing meals for feasts, and all the other important matters of maintaining a public face. Conversely, the private chambers were where the Lord, his family, and his private possessions were kept. These were the living quarters the part of the Lord's life that were kept out of public view. And the men of the chambers ensured that that side of life was running efficiently. So if you were the craftsman and you're trying to bend the ear of a high-ranking retainer, which area would you seek out? The public-facing men of the hall or the private domain of the men of the chamber? You might be assuming that the hall was the place to be. After all, they were the people who dealt with the public. These were the people that you might be imagining when you think of a lord's household. And if people had contact with the lord's household, it was almost certainly with them. And that does seem rather prestigious. Or at least more prestigious than being completely unseen in the private chambers, presumably minding the lord's undies. But that wasn't the case. The men of the hall were typically just ordinary retainers. Not all that different from you. It was the men of the chambers who were high status. These were the people who were likely from high-status families and had a demonstrated history of competence and could be trusted to be loyal. And that's because the men of the chamber worked closest to the Lord. They were admitted into the areas of the estate that others, even other servants, were excluded from. In the game of access, which is what much of the power structure of Anglo-Saxon life was, the men of the chamber had the most of it. And this closeness 
meant that a man of the chamber was likely to be part of a lord's inner circle. But that being said, having access to the private chambers didn't necessarily indicate that someone was of a high station, because some Hirad men were unfree. And we know this because some lords have granted some of their retainers freedom in their wills. Furthermore, while most retainers were probably free, they were also likely low-ranking churls. For example, in poems, we see references to lords' retinues containing unorne churl, which means simple freemen. So simply serving your lord, even if you were serving him closely within his private chambers, wouldn't necessarily propel you through the class structure. This system was much more complex and nuanced than that. There very well could be slaves who had the kind of access to a lord that a thane would kill for. But they were still a slave, so that wouldn't mean that they had the same degree of social standing that the thane did, not by a long shot. So, where you were working would have one impact upon your status. Your social position, like who your family was or whether or not you were free, would have another impact upon your status. And then there was the issue of what sort of title and duties you carried out for your lord, because that also had status implications. In a lord's household, we see seneschals, stewards, hero-depressed, which were chaplains, hero-de-hunter, which were stag-hunters. We even see sword-wita, which were sword polishers. The bigger the lord, the larger his retinue, and consequently, the more job titles were available. So chances are, the hall and the chambers were bustling with people with important-sounding titles, carrying out all kinds of tasks for your lord, and all of them would have had different positions in the hierarchy, though not all of them would have had big marquee titles like steward or butler. Actually, the most common title in a lord's household was that of young man. And while that might seem like a diminutive title, it actually conferred an enormous amount of power if it was wielded properly. Serving as a young man, or what could also be translated as a youth, among the Lord's retainers was actually the first career step for many scions of affluent families. Just like how eldermen were sending their sons to serve as king's thanes, lesser families were vying to get their sons' positions in the local Lord's retinue. And they were doing this for good reason. The most prestigious of these young men might even become men of the chamber and be part of the inner circle of the Lord's household. They might even be counted as his friend. A lower-ranked friend, but still a friend. But like all other titles, not all the young men in a Lord's household were created equal. When we look at wills, we see that the favor that they received by their Lord could vary wildly. For example, we have records of one bishop who gave eight hides of land to one of his young men, and then he just gave a sword to another one. Now, this could simply be a reflection that the bishop didn't like the other boy, or it could be a reflection of that youth's familial and economic status. It could go either way. But the point is that status was a lot more complicated than just simply a title. But that being said, these youths occupied a highly sought-after position. And as they moved around the estate, they likely cast a large shadow over a former itinerant craftsman like you. Their power was substantial, and it was a result of the role that they played in the Lord's household. The first and probably most important role that they played was as part of the Lord's military. This position of young man was specifically for young fighting age men, and that meant that they were ideal for the Lord's personal military detachment. So when the kingdom went to war, and the third was called, 
and large numbers of fighting-age men were summoned to the Lord's domain. The best among them, these young men, were retained for service with the Lord himself. They were his inner circle on the battlefield. In a sense, they were a continuation of the warband culture, but still operating within the reformed military structure that had been laid out by Alfred. And culturally, this was also an expression of trust and security. They had the Lord's life in their hands. So the young men of the Lord's household held a favored position within the retinue, and bonds were no doubt formed as a result of this. Outside of war, the youths protected the Lord from the more mundane dangers. You see, this era was a violent one, and one major concern for any Lord was force steal, which basically meant highway robbery. And the trouble with being a wealthy lord is that suddenly you were quite attractive to bandits. The other significant danger of this time was assassination, which we've seen plenty of. The crime of hamsucken, or basically the attack of a man in his own household, was such a severe crime that it was exclusively retained for the king's judgment. If you committed that crime, you were getting hauled off to Winchester. But despite that heavy penalty, it doesn't seem like it stopped anyone from killing their rivals. I mean, King Edmund himself was stabbed to death in the middle of a crowded feast. This was a dangerous time, even for the most powerful members of society. And while being a lord did provide a lot of benefits, it also meant that they likely had some rather dangerous enemies. So in the face of this, the nobility went old school. Those warbands that they resurrected for war, well, they just kept them around whenever they wanted to go on a journey. And we're not just talking about a couple strong arms. We're told of eldermen riding, quote, accompanied by a large mounted company, end quote. We even have a record of an elderman spurning the abbot of Ramsey because the abbot wouldn't grant hospitality to his full guard. Apparently, the elderman's personal guard was just too damn big to feed and house. And that should give you an idea of how large these retinues could get. And that's because riding in a lord's entourage was a duty that was required by the free members of his hered men, thanes and churls alike. So... Let's assume that the Lord wants to make a journey to London. That's a significant trip that would take him through lands of other powerful nobles. And in that case, even though you're not a fighter, you're just a craftsman, he might call you up, along with the rest of his free Herod men, and order you to take that journey with him. Now, given that you're not a wealthy retainer, it's unlikely that you'd have your own horse, like some of the more high-status retainers did, like the Seneschal. But if you think that's going to get you out of this, think again. The Lord would likely just have you riding one of the workhorses from his lands. You're going to London. But for smaller trips, it probably didn't make sense to call up such a large retinue and cause all that disruption. So for those circumstances, a smaller guard was all that was necessary. And the Lord would call up the young men. Consequently, when the Lord was seen in public, it would have been in the company of these same men. When he went riding, it was often with them. And this special guard of retainers weren't just some random hands in the Lord's estate. They typically formed his bodyguard, his mounted escort, and even acted as his warband. And when they weren't acting as an armed guard, they would sometimes act as mounted messengers, or even ride to act on the Lord's behalf. In fact, their tasks were so heavily tied to their role as a mounted unit that they even had horses and tacks specifically for this kind of work. And as a consequence, their horses and riding tacks stopped being simply practical elements of their job and instead became marks of their status. 
Their ancestors in the Werod would have worn gold and garnet cloisonné belts to show off their status. But for these young men, it was all about the horses and tack. And eventually, the title of young man, or knit in Old English, took on a new pronunciation, and one that remains to this day. Knight. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we're on Reddit now. So if you'd like to chat with other listeners, we have our own little subreddit. It's our British History Pod. And you can join all our other communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>